Go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy with me. We're starting a new book today. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy um, has a, a special place in my heart. I've got a fondness for it, partly because shortly after I got out of college, I moved to Wausau, Wisconsin, which is where I met Pastor Krenz, who um, has had, out of all of the men I've met in my life, has had the greatest impact on me spiritually. Yeah, maybe Dustin runs a close second. So, But um, he's the one who taught me how to handle the Word of God. He's the one who mentored me. He's the one who um, encouraged me to go on to seminary. He's the one that paid for about 25-30% out of his own pocket. So, But what he did was he took me through First and Second Timothy just verse by verse. For two years, I met with him every Monday for about an hour, and we would just start where we left off the week before, and he would make a note in his calendar of where we left off, and then the next week we'd come back, and that's where we started. So um, I don't remember, I believe I've preached through it once before. I don't remember when, um, so it's been a long time. So I'm looking forward to this. Today we're going to be only in one verse. I know Dustin wanted me to cover more this morning. But uh, we're just in one verse this morning, the very first verse. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about this. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and the book of Titus are referred to as the pastoral epistles. And the reason is, Paul wrote them to two young protégés, Timothy and Titus. And they were his um, traveling companions, but they were also his co-ministers. They ministered alongside him. They also would minister in place of him. He would leave them at places. He would go and help to establish a church. And then he would oftentimes leave them there to take care of some of the um, work that was involved with establishing that church, like the appointing of elders and other things. And so these were two extremely trusted and faithful servants of Paul. They served as co-pastors with him. And so he wrote these three letters to them to provide them with instructions as to specifically maybe how the church is to function or issues that might have been within the church. This particular letter that we're looking at today, 1 Timothy, is the first of those three letters. It appears that he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus probably together. He probably wrote those shortly after he was released from his first prison imprisonment in Rome. Remember at the book of Acts, he ends up in prison. He was there for at least two years. It appears that when he was released, he wrote this letter and Titus to Timothy and Titus. And then shortly thereafter, he wrote 2 Timothy, probably within a couple of years. And he wrote that shortly before going back to prison for the second time where he ultimately was martyred. Now, this particular letter here covers everything from dealing with doctrine to false teaching, to the appointment of elders and deacons, general conduct within the church. He deals with some issues and some concerns he had with the Ephesian church. He deals with how to take care of the elderly and the respect for um, widows and orphans. Well, orphans primarily in the book of James, but um, here he talks about caring for widows. He even provides warnings in this letter about the love of money and wealth. So it covers a lot of bases. As I mentioned, he wrote this shortly before the end of his life, so in many respects it's got the wisdom of Paul that he had gathered over years of ministry. And he kind of buttons all that up in these instructions here now to these young protégés that he knows will be 
um, following up his ministry after he is gone. Um, One of the values in studying these letters is that it teaches us about the critical importance of the local church. That's what the focus is on these letters. It's supposed to be a place of um, promoting teaching and encouragement. It's supposed to be a place where we are trained. One of the reasons why we kind of do things the way we do here is because we are absolutely convinced that this is our time. And it is boot camp. It is to train you so that you can leave here and actually go out and do the work of the ministry. Some churches have almost gotten that reversed where they've taken this time here and turned it into the work and have made this time a time for unsaved people. Now their hearts are in the right place. They want to see people saved. But because they've chosen to do that and cater to the unsaved, oftentimes nobody's trained to go out and do the work of the ministry. And so we believe very strongly that that's the purpose of the local church. And you'll see that as we look at this letter. It's a time of training. It's boot camp for us to prepare us to go out. The local church is also supposed to be a place that encourages right behavior that honors Jesus Christ and discourages wrong behavior that dishonors Jesus Christ. That becomes very clear in this letter as well. We do both. So when somebody comes to the church here and calls this their church home... Part of our responsibility is to hold them accountable for right behavior. And when they aren't acting right, to call them out in brotherly love, right? That's the purpose of the church. It's supposed to be a place where we behave ourselves. We're encouraged to behave ourselves. And that becomes clear in this letter as well. I'm going to bring this example up just because it's a recent one here. Um, I even had some dialogue with... Dustin a little bit this morning about some comments made by Andy Stanley almost a year ago and I I bring this up only because one of the things that he had done in his um, message as he dealt with the LGBT issue was in many respects he sort of downplayed the sin nature of that and there are pastors who have called him out now on that recently here saying that what he's basically essentially done is made them feel comfortable and welcome in that sin and that's not what's supposed to take place in the church people are supposed to be somewhat uncomfortable their sin is to be called out we should welcome sinners but they should recognize that they they need to change not to come to Christ but once they come to Christ to be changed to be renewed and to go out and that's one of the responsibilities of the church and that is something we'll see in this letter as well. A third value in studying this is it's supposed to be a place where we care for one another. And that becomes clear in this letter as well. Paul talks about that, especially as it comes to widows. So it's supposed to be a place where we take care of one another. That is indeed our first responsibility. We're supposed to be sharing the gospel. That is the primary goal of the church but when it comes to coming here into the local church and being a family our first responsibility is to care for one another and so that becomes clear as well there's all kinds of stuff we're going to see as we go through this so I hope you uh, will enjoy it and I hope that uh, we will ultimately end change people when we get to the end of it so go ahead and turn to chapter 1 verse 1 the first thing that I want us to notice is that Paul knew whoops Let me check on this real quick here. Um, Paul knew exactly who he was, and he defined it by his relationship with Christ and his service and ministry to him. We'll see that this morning. Paul knew exactly who he was, and he defined that by his relationship to Jesus Christ and his service to him. 
Now, with the exception of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Paul begins each one of his letters almost the same way, with a declaration. And that declaration we find in verse 1 of 1st Timothy, just the first few words, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, this is the most frequent term Paul applies to himself in all of his writings, is that he's an apostle. That's how he identified himself. Now, when you think of the word apostle, what do you think of? Immediately, we probably think of the 12, right? The 12 apostles. And that's important. You've got people like Matthew, Mark, Luke, James, John, all those. Um, Not Luke so much, I'm sorry. Matthew and Mark and Luke. Luke is the author of Acts and the Gospel, but he wasn't an apostle per se. But, But for the most part, an apostle, we think of the 12, right? The word's also used of others, however, in the New Testament. I've referenced possibly Luke, but James, the brother of Jesus, Barnabas, Silas, even others, are referred to as apostles in some of Paul's writings. Now, in that sense, it means more a messenger, somebody sent out with a message. And so you have these two uses of this word apostle in the New Testament. The specific role of the twelve and Paul, because Paul was, and we'll get to this in a second, was referred to specifically in the role of an apostle. So we have that function of apostle, specifically designed by God for a purpose and a function. But then you have it used in a general sense to mean those who are sent out with a message. And that's at the heart and soul of what it means to be an apostle. It's somebody who is sent out with a message. So technically... That's what we're looking at here. When Paul calls himself an apostle, he's saying that I'm somebody who's been sent out with a message. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider, and this is an interesting one, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. How many of you knew that Jesus was called an apostle? Why? He was sent by God with a message. And so that's at the heart and soul of what it means to be an apostle. So you've got the technical side of that, the more formal side of that, and then you've got the more general side of that. Now, when it comes to that technical side of it, when you have that formal role of apostle, which is what Paul is referring to here, there are some very specific requirements in the New Testament. The first is that they had to have seen Jesus after his resurrection from the dead. The second is that they had to have been specifically chosen by Jesus Christ and commissioned into formal ministry by him to testify that he was the one who had been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. That's a mouthful. Essentially this. In order to be considered a technical or formal apostle, you had to first have seen Jesus Christ after his resurrection, and then secondly, you had to have been personally picked by Jesus Christ for that role to be a witness to the world that he is judge of the living and the dead turn to Acts chapter 1 if you would Acts chapter 1 starting in verse 15 you remember this story it's where the apostles had all come together the eleven they're missing one because Judas had betrayed Christ And so they determined that they needed to replace Judas 
with somebody else. Look what they say in verses 15 and following. At this point, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. And he said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled by the Holy Spirit, foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language the field has been called Hakalamda, which is the field of blood. For it was written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell on it. And let another man take his office. That's the passage that they used to believe that they needed to replace Judas. Therefore, it is necessary that the men who have accompanied us, or that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So the individual had to be somebody who had seen Jesus and had seen his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which of these you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So you see those two things here. They said it had to be somebody who had seen Jesus after he rose from the dead, And somebody that Jesus specifically chose, and they used the system of casting lots to determine that. Turn to Acts chapter 10, verse 40. We'll start at verse 39. We are witnesses of all the things he, Jesus, did both in land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible not to all the people but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who had been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. You catch what he's saying there? He's talking primarily about the apostles. He says he appointed us beforehand to witness his resurrection and to then preach that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. Now, not everyone who saw Jesus after his resurrection became an apostle. There were some 500 that saw him. But of those, a very few were selected specifically by Jesus to serve as apostles with a very specific witness. Paul met both of these qualifications. Paul had seen Jesus after his resurrection and he was specifically handpicked by Jesus Christ to be an apostle. Look at Acts chapter 9. You're familiar with Paul's conversion. We're going to read through that. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring to them bound to Jerusalem. And he was traveling. It happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. We see both things there. He sees a blinding flash of light. The men around him can't see what's going on, but Jesus knows that it's Jesus Christ. He knows that he's alive. He's a witness now to the resurrection. But not only that, Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up, enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Now, jump down to verse 11. He's talking to Ananias. The Lord, he says, Get up and go to the street called Straight. Inquire at the house of Judas for a man named, or a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he is, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So we see here with Paul, both the witness to the resurrection and hand-picked by Jesus Christ. I don't believe that Paul viewed his role as an apostle here as a choice. In fact, when you look at this, you see that he wasn't given much choice, was he? Go back to 1 Timothy, if you would. And look at verse 1 again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, one chosen specifically by Jesus Christ, one who witnessed the resurrection, he says this, according to the commandment of God. According to the commandment of God. In five of his other letters, Paul states that he was an apostle by the will of God. I'll just give you those references you can look up on your, up on your own, but First and Second Corinthians, the book of Ephesians, Colossians, and then Second Timothy. Very specifically, Paul says, I was made an apostle by the will of God. That is the equivalent of God commanding it. God's will is synonymous with his commands. So Paul states here that he's an apostle both because God and then even in the rest of the verse 1, Jesus Christ commanded that he be an apostle. Think about this. Again, you go back to his conversion. Jesus never asked him, So Paul, how's that Pharisee thing working out? Interested in the job change? No. Basically says, You're a chosen instrument of mine. You will bear my name before Gentiles and before kings and before the sons of Israel. Then for good measure he throws in, Oh, I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name's sake. In Paul's conversion, the very end of it, we see that he took that to heart. Because almost in just a matter of a few days after getting his sight back, we see that he started to proclaim the name of Jesus in the synagogues around Jerusalem. Almost immediately. He took the command to heart. Turn to Acts chapter 27. I, got, I picked up this new Bible because mine was a little bit worn. And uh, it's a more of a slimline. What's interesting is it's not as thick. 
So when I go to find stuff, I'm grabbing way too many pages now. <laughs> so I, I'm overshooting everything. I'm not used to it. I'm very visual. I remember things where they are, where they are in the, in the, you know, in the pages. So Acts chapter 27, verses 19 and 20. Paul is standing before King Agrippa. He's talking about his conversion and about his calling as, as an apostle. And look what he says. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient. I did not prove disobedient, verse 19, to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the regions of Judea and even the Gentiles. Notice he says, I did not prove what? Disobedient. He doesn't just say, I proved faithful. It's a little bit stronger to say, I didn't prove disobedient. Why? Because he recognized that his calling as an apostle wasn't just a mission, it was a command. He didn't have a choice. Now, sure, he could have disobeyed, but not when you love the Lord. Not when you recognize what the Lord has done for you. When Paul, when he was confronted on the road to Damascus with his world being shattered in some respects, the man he had been persecuting, the people he had been persecuting that followed that man, all of a sudden he realizes, wow, this guy is alive and he's just now commanded that I make my life a mission to declare his name to the world. Paul didn't see that as a choice. The only thing he saw was an opportunity for obedience. Which shouldn't surprise us because Paul was zealous. Even before his conversion to Christ, Paul's desire was to obey the Lord. That's why he did what he did. He thought he was obeying the law by persecuting Christians. They were blasphemers. This man Jesus who claimed to be God was a blasphemer. So Paul was a man who desired to obey. It shouldn't shock us that when he finally, when it dawned on him what the truth was, that he would take it seriously. And as he tells Agrippa, I didn't hesitate. I didn't disobey. So Paul knew exactly who he was, and he defined it by his relationship with Christ and the mission that Christ had given to him. So what do we do with that? I don't think that we are all that different from the Apostle Paul. Maybe we weren't called to be apostles. Maybe we didn't physically see Jesus after his resurrection. But if you remember, the, God, the, the mission of the church is pretty simple. We as believers, the body of Christ, the church, are supposed to take the message of the gospel to the world. That's what we're called to. We, as well as Paul, we are messengers with a message who have been sent out. Jesus, when he left his disciples, as he was taken up into heaven, told them, you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, the ends of the earth. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all end with Jesus' command to his disciples to go out and to be his witnesses, his messengers. All three of them. Again, we may not be apostles or pastors and teachers. Many of us are not gifted evangelists. I'm not a gifted evangelist. I don't have that spiritual gift. So how do we then carry the message of Christ to the world around us? I'm going to give you five things that I think might help. I think it's daunting sometimes for many of us. You know, the idea of evangelism, going out and sharing the gospel, especially in a world as hostile as it is becoming. It is becoming anathema now to be a Christian. 
to share the gospel. There was um, somebody I heard about just not too long ago simply because they were identified as being a Christian lost a job. And it was mostly because their values were seen as improper by the world standards. So what, what can we do? Turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And this is from Paul himself, a man who was gifted in evangelism. But notice what he says to those who maybe aren't. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. I keep missing the boat here. He says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now, you may not look at that as an evangelistic passage, but it actually is. The first thing Paul calls on his readers to do is to actively pray for God to open up doors for him and his ministry. It's amazing how when we pray that God would open up doors, how he does that. But when you think about the number of people that are out there on the front lines, that are gifted evangelists, that are pastors and teachers and others that are on a regular basis sharing the good news, as you pray for them, much like Paul does, what does that do to your own heart? What does that do with your mind? It focuses you on the mission of the church. And so one of the things that we can do to help us is to pray that God would open doors And I would say not just for others, like in the case of Paul here, but even for ourselves. I am never surprised that when I pray that God would open up doors for me to share the gospel, that he does exactly that. That's how I've gotten most of the opportunities in my work environment. Lately, I've been praying that God would open up doors because I'm at home 99% of the time. Most of my time is on the phone with people, and that makes it extremely difficult. But somehow, in some ways, God moves people on the other end of that phone to share personal life examples and stories that oftentimes opens up the door for me to talk to them. That's all God's doing. I was praying one time for an opportunity that God might give me just out and about, and Amy and I went over to Wits and We're sitting down on a bench and some dude sat down right in front of us, plopped his butt down, started talking, and he brought up some end times stuff. He wasn't a Christian, but it led to a great opportunity to share the gospel with him. Amy and I went home and I kind of went, man, I was just praying about that yesterday. You know, He didn't wait. So one thing we can do is to pray that God would open up doors. Notice, Paul also says we should be wise and take advantage of the opportunities that he gives us. Look back at verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom. Conduct yourself with wisdom. Why? Or where? Toward outsiders. Who is that? Outsiders are the unbelievers. They're outside this building here. They're outside the family of God. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward them. And then this, making the most of the opportunity. What do you suppose he means there? This is in the context of praying that God may open doors. So Paul basically says, when God does that, 
Conduct yourselves with wisdom and take advantage of the opportunity. I think oftentimes we're given opportunity and we just don't take it. I've kicked myself sometimes because, oh, man, why didn't you? you just, it's like God just gift-wrapped it and put a bow on it and you just walked away from it. And again, it doesn't mean it has to be a full-on four spiritual laws type experience. Somebody mentions a hard time they're having, they're struggling, and you say, okay, I'm sorry about that, and you walk away. Why not take advantage of the opportunity? Yeah, I know it's tough. I'll pray for you. I think God might be able to help you with that. I'm here to talk if you want to talk. Take advantage. That's easy, folks. Again, it doesn't have to be a full-on four spiritual laws. Do what you can. Use your gifting, the compassion God has given us. Look at verse 6. The third thing he tells us here is that we should exercise grace, unmerited favor, when responding to the unsaved. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will be know, or so that you will know how you should respond to each person. It's amazing, oftentimes, um, what responding with grace and mercy does. Well, we are prone to judge. We are prone to point fingers. I know I'm guilty of that. But oftentimes, extending grace does so much more than that and so one of the things we can do is learn to extend grace that doesn't mean we don't mention wrong it doesn't mean that we aren't open and honest um, I've shared before how Kimberly has this, these two friends um, who are unsaved she brought them to church here a while back and um, the two of them stayed after Kimberly had, had lunch with them one day and Kimberly had to go to work so the two of them stayed and I had a great opportunity to share the gospel and talk with them and when they were leaving the young lady told us that one of the reasons she likes Kimberly is because Kimberly is honest with her and speaks the truth to her. But I've heard Kimberly talk to her on the phone and as blunt as Kimberly can be, boy, she also has this amazing ability to extend grace to the unsaved. And she sees that at work. I went, I, she took me over to Bob Evans the other day um, to eat and I, I was floored kind of came away feeling like a proud papa because um, most of these people are all unsaved and it's a a hard environment because it's always and they're backbiting and all that kind of stuff but everybody kept coming up to me like oh my gosh you know Kimberly hasn't worked in a week because she developed this tendonitis which is a chronic thing she gets occasionally so she was off work we walked in and they're like when are you coming back we miss you so much everything from the waitress to the other hostesses and even when we went to leave somebody shouted all the way from the kitchen Kimberly We'll see you again, you know. And um, But what was interesting is I've seen her interact. I've seen her talk on the phone. And so as blunt as she can be with just telling the truth, she does have this way sometimes when she knows they're unsaved of just being gracious, accepting them for who they are, not being afraid to share the truth, but extending grace. And that's one of the things that this friend seemed to suggest. That I love the fact that she's just honest with me but I don't think she'd feel that way if it were just blunt. But because Kimberly has a way to be able to do that sometimes with just being gracious, it goes a long way. And so the three things that Paul mentions here that we can do is we can be praying for open doors, we can take advantage when God does open those doors and provides opportunity, and we can extend grace. What else? There's two other things that are mentioned by Peter. Turn to First Peter chapter 3.
First Peter chapter 3. Jump down to verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Why do I see this as an evangelistic passage here? Well, He tells us that we should sanctify Christ in our hearts, which means to make Christ the most important thing in our hearts. I heard a song that I've never heard before driving here, kind of made a note of it, First Things First. And the song is about making Christ the first thing, above all else. thought that was rather timely. But when we sanctify Christ in our hearts, what that ultimately does is it reveals to people where our faith and our hope is placed. So when we face difficulty, and this is the context here, is persecution, suffering. When we make Christ number one in the heart, when he is given first place, when we sanctify him in our hearts, that comes out even when the world persecutes us. And people can see that. Which then leads to the second thing, which is being ready to give an account. We ought to tell people where our hope is. We ought to tell people why we still have hope in a broken world. You know, as much as I whine and complain about the way things are going under this current administration, I find myself having to go, do I ever reflect that I still have hope? Not so much in this life, but in Christ. I've made an effort to do that at work when I talk with others who share some similar convictions but are not Christians. And so we can talk about politics and we can talk about our frustration and I kind of remind myself, let them know that as much as you're frustrated by what you see in this life here with this administration, that your hope isn't in some Republican getting in office, but that ultimately God's got a plan and that's what you're looking forward to. And so I try to make an effort to do that. That's an evangelistic tool, folks. So... We've got these five things we can do that will help us to be kind of like Paul, where he was an apostle, specifically chosen to bear witness to Christ. We may not have that specific calling and identity, but we are still called to be his witnesses. And I'll be real frank, it's not as hard as it sounds. Like I said, these are things we can do in everyday life. Amen? So, our purpose and mission... We are just like Paul in that regard, right? Paul identified himself by his relationship with Christ. I am an apostle. What do you say? If I were to ask you, who are you? Would you say, I'm a messenger of Jesus Christ? Is that the first thing that comes to mind? I'm going to propose it probably should be. Second thing I want us to see in this passage this morning is that Paul was consumed by the hope of salvation. Paul was absolutely consumed by the hope of salvation. Go back to verse 1 again of 1 Peter. I want you to look at how... At how go back to 1 Timothy. Did I say 1 Peter? Oh, I'm sorry. Go back to 1 Timothy. 
I'm having all kinds of trouble this morning. I called Luke an apostle. I mean, just... Uh, I want you to look at how Paul refers to both God and Jesus Christ here. Paul could have simply said that he was an apostle according to the commandment of God and Christ Jesus. That would have been enough, right? But Paul does something kind of interesting here. He gives labels to both God and Christ. Notice that he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God, what? God, our Savior. Isn't that rather interesting? We always think Jesus as our Savior, right? Almost all of the time, how do I say this? There's at least, it's either, I think it's about eight times in the New Testament where God is referred to as Savior. And at least six of those are the Apostle Paul who does that. One of them is right here. Now, I'm going to just read them real briefly here for you. You don't have to turn here, but 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, For it is this that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who, God, is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Even in Titus, the third, the third um, pastoral epistle here, he says this, Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us on the basis of deeds which we have done, in right, or not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So you see, in those three instances, Paul refers to God as our Savior. Now, I don't think that should be all that surprising because that is a very Old Testament concept. Paul is an Old Testament scholar. He likely used language from the Old Testament. First, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 2, David praises the Lord saying this. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. That's right out of David's mouth. Viewed God as Savior. Psalm chapter 17, verse 7, David wrote this. I've called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. Even in the book of Isaiah, we see the same thing. God is repeatedly referred to as Savior, as the Lord of Israel. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior, God says. A little bit later in Isaiah 49, verse 26, and 60, verse 16, he says, I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, referred to God as her Savior in Luke chapter 1, verse 47. She says, And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. God identifies himself as Savior. The prophets, the Old Testament saints, referred to God as Savior. And even Paul himself refers to God as Savior. And so we see that here in 1 Timothy when he refers to God as Savior as well. Notice he as well gives Jesus a label as well. 
He says, Jesus Christ, who is our hope. It's tied to salvation. He's not referring here to wishful thinking or even an earthly hope. He's referring to an assurance of eternal salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. He is our hope of being resurrected. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 25. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifest in his saints to whom God willed known or whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is that mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is God's mystery? It's Christ in us, which is our hope of glory someday. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Listen to the Apostle Paul. This gives you an idea of how consumed he was with this hope. For I consider the sufferings of this present time, this is verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Colossians 3, verse 4, Paul says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. That is our hope. The hope of being resurrected with Christ in glory. So those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, we can know that without a shadow of a doubt. That's what waits for us. That is what we look forward to. That is our hope. And it's interesting that Paul is consumed by that hope. He's consumed by the thought that God saves. He's consumed by the thought of us having hope for resurrection in Jesus Christ. So what's our takeaway with that from the Apostle Paul? Earlier we were reminded that Peter says that we're always to be ready to give an answer for the hope, what we just talked about, that we have. I think that's our greatest evangelistic tool. For those of us that are not gifted evangelists, I knew guys in seminary that could go out and lead a boulder to Christ. Seriously. Every, every week they'd come back with some, somebody that they didn't just share the gospel with, but somebody they led to Christ. That's not me. God has never used me that way. 
So for the rest of us, I think our greatest tool for evangelism is the hope that we have in Christ. And if we exude that, if people can see that, that opens the door to opportunity. Oftentimes I think we are known as Christians, we're known more for the things we oppose than the hope that we have. I think it's a fine line sometimes because we should speak out. We should point out sin. Without recognizing sin, no one can get saved. We're told that you have to repent. You can't repent of something you don't know what's wrong, right? So in many respects, the church is here to be used as a tool. And so it's important that we speak out. It's important that we speak the truth. But if that's all that people see, and they see us do that without hope, or if they see us do that without grace, what hope is there for them? So again, I go back to this idea that oftentimes we are known more for what we're opposed to than the hope that lives within us. And right out of the gate, Paul reminds us of the hope that he has in God his Savior and the resurrection. So I guess I would ask, what do people see when they look at us? If you could get outside of yourself and see yourself from the outside like others see you, what do they see? For some, I'm not suggesting us here, but for some what they see is somebody who's always got a problem with everything around them, somebody who always wants to point a finger, somebody who's always angry, upset, hates what's going going on around the world, right? But they don't see much hope. They don't see much mercy or grace. At other times, all they see is somebody whose arms wide open and sin doesn't matter and God just loves you exactly as you are and we're all just one big happy family come into our church and you'll just be welcomed as you are. We'll put out our flags and we'll put out our, all this other stuff, you know, and we'll just... There's no hope there either, is there? So lost. So I think as we look at this, two takeaways for us today as we look at the Apostle Paul... Paul recognized who he was and he identified himself first and foremost as somebody sent out on a mission by Jesus Christ. That's us too. Maybe not with the exact same calling, but we're still sent out as messengers. The second thing we saw in Paul was that he was absolutely consumed with salvation and with hope. And he was willing to put himself on the line, put his life on the line because of it. We should be as well. What people should see in us is a love for our Savior and the hope that we have within us. I think that will help us just like it did Paul. So what's your identity this morning? Are you a messenger sent out with the message of Jesus Christ? Let's hope we are.